This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are almost heretical. The heroes in the Bible are not Samson. They're not even the, the David Solomon figures that our, our Bible stories as little kids want us to believe. The heroes in the Bible are, are persecuted protesters. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. We're back. Yeah, we're in a garage this time. It's not quite as cozy. It is a little warmer, but we are... Do we have to do the shed talk every time we start off? We don't do it every time. We just should just tell them we're not in the shed. We're, we're not in, in the shed. Nate's garage in Portland. Yes. <clears throat> and we have mic stands this week, which is awesome. We're both reclined. And we started a series on the Bible is a story about power last week. And now we're going to continue that this week. So I think we should probably start off talking about why this is even important to us. Like, why is this important to us, Timothy? Well, so I haven't shared my story yet on this podcast, but in large part, the only reason I'm able to do a podcast is because a year ago, I experienced what it's like to stand up to the power structures of evangelical church uh, celebrity pastors and got the full backlash of, uh, of that system and was fired. It's a much longer story. There's hours and hours of stuff we can talk about, and we will soon. But uh, I had already been processing how to think about power and power dynamics and how power, uh, social power dynamics are integral to all of the ethical conversations we're having around sexism and racism and how people treat one another. Really starting to see over the last several years that if we're not aware of and assessing the power dynamics going on in a situation, we're really handcuffed in terms of how well we can actually provide any sort of ethical framework to understand that situation. So I was already reflecting on that stuff. And then this last year of life, I was forced to experience it and feel it and, uh, and got a taste of what so many people in the world have, have tasted, which is those who have less power when you try to critique or hold accountable those that have the most power. It usually doesn't go very well. Your voice like mine, often gets silenced and you actually get pushed out, swept under the rug. So I had already felt like in the theological work I had been doing and my own readings and reflections of the scripture that evangelicalism had largely omitted a major portion of the biblical story and the ethics, the New Testament Christian ethics relating to power. And then it got really personal over the last year. I guess when you were talking, it did make me think about the prophets. And I know that's what our show is going to be about today. But you, you said something there about um, when you're trying to, from a position of not having power, trying to speak um, usually something of like critique to the power structure, then you just kind of basically get destroyed for it and pushed outside the community. They kind of persecute that, that person and then they're, they're done. Um, and they, the machine moves on, but you know, that person and the critique that went along with it often gets just kind of pushed away and yeah. Yeah. And I think that's just a fact of life that has always happened and continues to happen. But I think part of why we've actually found so much solace and a reinstilled passion in doing biblical theology on the other side of our frustrations with evangelicalism is it actually there are better ways to do theology that actually account for these dynamics. They actually account for this human experience of power corrupting and power abusing others. And that the, the scriptures are actually texts that are, that are familiar with and written by those who have experienced that exact same disempowerment. And so last week we, we tried to connect why we had started this whole show on kind of a large deep dive into the fall. And so I'll just say right now, if you, if you haven't listened to the first what, eight episodes of the podcast, if you can, go back and give them a listen, because it's basically a deep dive into uh, rethinking the fall, not just as one small story of Eve eating an apple in Genesis 3, but a, a whole collection of narratives. And last week what we did is we got into another one of these verses that the church usually doesn't know what to do with, is the... The event in Genesis 9 where Ham, immediately following the flood, essentially rapes his mom in a coup d'etat to seize power from his own dad at the expense of his own mother. And that that 
story was set in parallel with the story immediately preceding the flood of the divine beings essentially doing the same thing, waging war on humanity to themselves seize power. You're talking about Genesis 6. Exactly. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. So what we so said is... Genesis 6, and then what's the other... Where's the other one? Genesis the, 9. Okay. And everything and, that happens in the middle is the flood. And you're saying, and this is what we're going to try to show on this show, that basically those are bookends, and that means that the point of the flood is to kind of get rid of that or deal with that? Yeah, exactly. That's the, the literary function of placing those two parallel stories one with divine beings as the culprit, one with humans as the culprit. Remember the curse in Genesis 3 was that there's now going to be war between this human realm and the realm of the Elohim. And then you have the whole centerpiece, several chapters, Genesis 6 through 9, in this collection of fall narratives that are saying the whole purpose for the flood narrative was to deal with this issue of a crazy thirst for power that was ravaging creation and the flood didn't work because the first thing that happens with those surviving group the surviving remnant of Noah's family is the same exact behavior of horrendous violence and injustice because people are thirsty for power so what we're trying to set up and that's actually the same logic that goes into Genesis 11 and what we already talked about of God giving up on the nations and starting Israel is the fall collection of stories, the Genesis 3 through 11 collection of stories, which is starting the Bible, is saying that the main problem that needs to be dealt with, the main thing that has ruined creation, is both mankind and this divine realm have a terrible thirst for power, and it, it is that thirst for power that is corrupting those who are supposed to rule creation. Yeah, and if that doesn't make total sense, do go back and listen to specifically episodes like two through seven, where we kind of get into that and unpack it. It's still uh, it's still pretty in depth, but it'll at least give you a better feel for where we're going with that. And if you don't have time for that, just think Lord of the Rings, and you'll. Uh, <laughs> it's a cheat sheet. <laughs> you'll, or at least keep that in mind when you go back and listen. Or Harry uh, Potter. Yeah, there you especially go. Especially book seven. Yeah, there you go. Um, so we are going to jump into all this. I do want to say one thing before we do, and that is we are recording in the garage. So you'll hear beeps and water running and maybe the water heater turning on and weird sounds like that. Um, but uh, that's just part of part of the show today. So there we go. Little Lucy might come running down in her jonies anytime too. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so last time, Nate, uh, we talked about this piece in the fall, but we also talked about how in addition to this, this literary warning about the corrupting influence of power is what immediately follows in the narrative of God making a nation for himself that he's going to use to set things right in the world. Inherent in that story is the idea that somebody or some group of people needs to be able to handle power well to actually set things right. This and is the whole, like, he chose them to be a blessing to the nations. Exactly, kind of yeah. Thing. That is what Israel's had defining its identity since the inception, since before they even existed as a people, since it was just an idea in the mind of Abraham and Sarah. I'm just trying to clarify that because I don't necessarily equate that with power, you know? I, I When I hear, like, they're chosen to be the ones that uh, are to bless the nations by the way they kind of live and what they do that doesn't necessarily like one for one translate over to so they are supposed to be able to hold power you know I mean? yeah yeah i get that but remember so we talked about this and it would take a longer time to to do all of the proof that we could do but in genesis 1 and 2 the vast majority of what is being stated about the creation of the world and the role of humanity via adam and eve is that god wants people to rule the world on his behalf. So the whole point of God working to fill and form the earth, which is what he does in the first six days of creation, he fills it, he forms it. It was formless and void. And God brings form to the formlessness and he fills the void with beings, with light, mm -hmm. with, with, uh, with created 
things. And what he does, the whole idea of God taking his seventh day of Sabbath rest is he's not working anymore. He created mankind to take over for his task. So what Adam and Eve are tasked with doing is exactly what God had already been doing in creation, filling and forming. So man and woman are called to multiply, fill the earth and cultivate, take dominion or take care of the creation plants. So that gets further elucidated when the fall happens and the main two curses or consequences or description of what life is going to be like after this this fallout between the Nakash and Adam and Eve is that Eve's going to have to make a lot of babies and Adam's going to have to, and it's going to be hard, and Adam's going to have to work really hard tilling the land. Basically, you have gender stereotypes built into this creation order, but the two jobs are to fill and form. So humans are supposed to be ruling the earth, and what that essentially means is to fill it with people by making babies, procreating, and essentially agricultural development. These roles are royal ruling roles, and that's what I essentially had pointed out, that that one of the best speculations, essentially, as to why the Nakash, the serpent, wanted to deceive Eve in the first place was a jealousy for the right to rule over this new creation, that the heavenly beings wanted to be kings on earth, and therefore they, they sought to dethrone Adam and Eve, who had been established as the kings and queens of earth. Remember, this isn't me making this stuff. Even C.S. Lewis was familiar with Adam and Eve as royal figures, which is why in the Narnia series, he talks about Queen Lucy. So Adam and Eve, humanity, are in, in charge of ruling the world. And then the divine beings succeed in, in getting them kicked off the throne. And so what happens is what you read about leading up to Genesis 6 is violence and corruption. And you basically have the divine beings come down, destroy the human bloodline, and everything is a complete mess. And so the flood happens. The idea is God wipes out, starts over. Remember, we called this a plan B. And what happens immediately upon a year later when Noah and his family float up on the mountaintop, God hands to Noah the the task, the royal task of filling and forming the earth that he had given to Adam and Eve. Right. Same thing. So, so Noah and his family are the new kings and queens of the world. Noah and his wife and his sons are the princes. And that is why Ham seeks to overtake his dad because he's literally fighting for rulership of the world. That's essentially what this story is trying to illustrate. So again, you go from plan B to plan C, God gives up on all of the nations at the Tower of Babel and decides to start with Abraham. And what does he do with Abraham? He hands to Abraham the same royal responsibility that he had given to Adam and then to Noah. He gives to Abraham saying, I will make you a bountiful nation that will fill the earth and hands to, to Abraham and Sarah the royal task that had started with Adam, been passed along to Noah. So the idea is it, it was a universal human calling to rule the world. But what the Genesis 11 to Genesis 12 transition is, is God, instead of ruling with the world at large, God chose to take one tiny people group within that larger world and and create for himself. That's where you get some of the somewhat vague English words of begetting. God didn't adopt another nation. God essentially formed for himself. The idea is miraculously through Abraham and Sarah who couldn't have kids otherwise, miraculously formed for himself what was supposed to be a faithful, righteous, just community that could become what all of humanity was supposed to be, the community that could rightly rule the world. Okay, so that's power. That's the power that that is given to what we call Israel basically because it's started from the beginning with Adam and Eve. They had the power um, and power just means like they're the people that were given this thing to do and given the authority, I guess, to do that thing. And then that traces all the way through. And so now we're here with flood has happened and we have Noah and his family. And then this thing with ham happens. And that's what we talked about in episode 11. So what, where, where do we go now? Like what, what happens next? So the case I wanted to make as clear as possible 
is that there are two major threads. The first one is this idea that power is the problem, that people that want power prove that they can't handle it and only use it for evil, that people do evil things in order to get power, that the the fight for power, which we have all tasted in so many ways in our own life, that that is at the center of what has gone wrong with creation. So there's a warning and a and a condemnation of power. And what will start to develop is this thread is essentially looking at the ability to not seize power as a virtue. That's the first thread. The second thread that comes immediately following in the next story, the story of Abraham, is that God wants to create a people group who can, in the midst of this world where power is the problem, who can have ultimate power, not just a little bit of power, but a, essentially the idea in the, in the Old Testament is a divine theocracy where there is a nation state which is given authority by God to rule the world. Essentially, we... That sounds really scary. It's ter- it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And it, and it should be a, a terrifying theological concept that if there weren't this other first thread that is already laying the foundation to say, beware of power, if you didn't have that thread and you just had an idea that your national ethnic identity is that God wants you to rule the world and be essentially the Lord of the other nations, what you have is a religion that leads to ISIS or the, the foundational ideas that lead to any of the horrendous forms of theocratic, religiously sanctioned violence and empire building and all that. It's a horrendously dangerous idea. But the Bible never lets that idea get too far away from this other thread that power is something that is dangerous and corrupts. So they're woven together in this these mm-hmm. earlier chapters of Genesis. And what we're going to walk through in a few episodes is that this string just keeps winding all the way through the rest of the Bible, literally through every other part of the Bible, centering around Jesus as the one who is the key to unlocking this tension for the first time ever. And part of my frustration, part of our observations of what is lacking and what has been so destructive in evangelical theology is something that's happened throughout church history, is something that happened throughout Israel's history, which is part of why Jesus was treated the way he was treated, which is that people want to latch on to the thread number two, that God is wanting to use them to rule, and they want to dismiss thread number one, which is that God is warning them, don't try to get a hold of power, it'll destroy you. Mm. And so what we have largely had is a Christianity built on thread number two, which has been stripped of what was never supposed to be disconnected of this other thread warning against power. Gotcha, okay. Hey Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Troy, you know that I was, because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we kind of, you teased where we're going. We're going to get all the way to Jesus and everything like that. But there's still a lot more of the Old Testament after the flood. Um, and I'm guessing, I'm just trying to, I guess I'm just trying to see like is, yeah, what what else is relevant there on this theme of power? Nothing jumps out of my head, I guess, that's like 
this is clearly about power, but as you've shown me all this other stuff, it's like, okay, there's gotta be more than. Yeah. Uh, well, Nate, okay. So you've, you've read the Bible for a long time. If I you have. tried to give a, a two minute elevator pitch history of from the time of Abraham, where God starts this whole idea of ruling the world through this people to essentially what we touched on last time, which is the kingdom. When you get to David and Solomon and there's this new dynasty of Kings, try to give a, that's basically what I was going gonna... <laughs> to say. <laughs> Shoot. Um, um, well, think about what happened. A couple things that happened in between. What happens after Abraham? Uh, basically, I mean, next big thing is the, they get go into captivity and then they come out of captivity I mean, I made that sound really short, but they were in captivity for a long time. And then they come out of captivity. They're wandering for a good number of years. Uh, And then don't they like build the tabernacle around that time? And uh, what else? Oh, then they want a king at some point. And then David. (laughs) That's that's a... (laughs) Yeah, it's factually, factually accurate. That was more abbreviated than I thought. Uh, but think about one of the first things to point out. So uh, you have a couple passages, Genesis 12, 15, 17, where you have God talking with Abraham, making essentially different forms of one cohesive promise to start this whole na- national project through uh, Abraham's offspring. But there's this really important peace which is intimately connected in the in the scriptures and in jewish identity of what it means to be this chosen people of god which is that god saw it fit in creating a a nation tasked with stewarding great power he saw it fit to start with a people who had spent 400 years as slaves and I think that is incredibly significant. And that kind of themes continues to snowball forward. So literally in Genesis 15, you have that scene where Abraham kind of goes into this trance and has this dream vision of God cutting the covenant uh, with him. And then in verse 13, it says, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So we know the rest of the story. There's Isaac and Jacob, who gets renamed Israel. The family grows. They have some kids. Joseph gets sent into Egypt, ends up basically bringing the people of Israel into Egypt, which is where they're enslaved for 400 years. And then the other central defining identity event of the Jewish people is the Exodus story where God uses Moses to liberate them. And they basically spend 40 years in the wilderness where God is trying to help them through Moses and Aaron and these, this set of Torah guidance or law, help them become a, a nation. They've been slaves and under the Egyptian empire for 400 years, they get liberated and Essentially, this is a, a grooming season where the task that is trying to be accomplished is to take a group of liberated slaves and teach them how to be the nation that's, that's going to be able to rule the world. So the main, the main point that I want to bring up here is you get in Genesis, you have the threat of power and the idea of a nation with power injunction. Then you have that idea of telling Abraham he's going to be the one, I'm going to build a nation through him, intimately intertwined with, and it's going to be a nation of slaves, of freed, liberated slaves. Those things are intertwined. And then when you get to the point in Israel's history when they have established government hierarchies of power that look essentially, that are modeled after the empires around them where they have a king at the top, that's when the prophets come in. That is when the role of the prophet becomes integral in Israel's history.
Okay, so the prophets are speaking to power from a position of no power, right? Uh, largely, yeah. Some some of the prophets had more standing uh, in you can call it government. Uh, it wasn't nearly like how we think of government. They had more standing in society, but most of the prophets didn't have much uh, standing. But more importantly, the job of the prophets was to put their neck on the line to critique those in power, usually the king, and those in the king's camp who are usually deemed the false prophets, the king's prophets, who are basically saying whatever the king wanted to hear, that kind of his cronies. Huh. I never, I've never heard of that happen before. <laughs> huh. Interesting. That's just, I guess it's good to, you know, to hear what, how other people live sometimes. Interesting. <laughs> So, so really, I mean, I think this is so, it's so obvious, but I don't think we spend enough time to stop and let it sink in. Built into the foundational ethics of what the people of Israel was supposed to be about was that their heroes were not their kings. Their heroes were the prophets who spoke out against their kings and who largely all were persecuted for it. And so we're talking about them now because they were the heroes. And it's just that no one was talking about them at the time. And no one was listening to them at the time, which is why there wasn't one prophet. <laughs> there were many prophets. Yeah, exactly. And so there's almost two layers at which we're talking here. We're talking about the individuals, the real-life historical people who were the prophets, and then we're talking about the books of the Bible, which were named after them and were largely collections of their teachings, or some of them actually had writings. And then a lot of them, like the book of Isaiah, is just, it's such a fascinating, amazing book. It's, it's almost like this figure of Isaiah, it wasn't just his teachings, but it was what that figure represented that gets snowballed forward. And we'll get into more of this next time, but the prophet itself that role becomes the paradigm that is held up and esteemed in in Jewish culture and in the scriptures that the the prophet who actually is completely ignored unlistened to persecuted s- oppressed silenced in his day what would happen is that for instance with the prophets that were warning of Judah's exile that when retrospectively, usually after they were already dead, when what those people had warned about, when the empire that Israel was trying to build collapsed the way they said that it would, that the Jews looked back and vindicated those prophets and said, oh, that guy was actually holy. And all the people that were in power who swept him under the rug and put his life in the dirt to protect themselves, those people were in the wrong and that that prophet was actually God's agent. And so not only did they then keep and cherish the, the words and ideas of the prophets, but the prophets themselves became these kind of noble figures that created actually a paradigm for the kind of messianic redeemer that would come and help Israel. I was just thinking MLK, MLK the whole time you were talking, because I think I, I read something a, a few years back where Martin Luther King Jr.'s approval, no, his disapproval rating was 63% in 1966. And I was like, just looking up to see, see what his approval rating is today. That's not even a thing because no one talks about what his approval rating Of course, it's 100% basically approval rating today. You don't... you. No one says anything bad about Martin Luther King Jr. today. Whereas in 1966, he has a 63% negative rating. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's that picture. And we've seen this, we're, it's probably gonna be the same thing with Colin Kaepernick, right? Like where right now, he's just getting like completely persecuted by the majority of America. But it's not gonna be that many years. Hopefully, hopefully he's still alive to see the vindication and the fact that he was actually speaking so much truth that we desperately needed. And I think it's, I think part of it is that the critique is so strong. People know that it's, there's truth to it. I'm, I'm hoping here. I'm just, (laughs) I'm just wishing. Um, 
but that maybe they see that there's some truth to it so they they don't want that like that tension that they're feeling inside of themselves of having to change and having to um or even just you know this whole like racism talk we see in america now it's like no i'm not a racist um you're calling me you're a racist i'm not a you know that whole all that stuff um they don't want to have to come to terms with with what that would mean if that was true and maybe that's why we vilify them i i don't know yeah i mean that same thing can basically be said about most reformers, most protesters, uh, anybody who's been on the side of speaking truth to power in a way that is sticking up for the marginalized, the oppressed, sticking up for justice, someone like Martin Luther King Jr. who's sticking up for rights, civil rights, are notoriously throughout all of human history vilified and persecuted because they are a threat to power. And those that have power use it in order to protect themselves from threats like profits. And so, like MLK, what you have is that a generation later, you have the white evangelical church today, basically on, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, everybody gives a tribute or says some, some honorary word or acknowledges that Martin Luther King Jr. was essentially a saint, one of the uh, true heroes of American culture and American Christianity. But none of us want to admit that that was the same white evangelical church that when Martin Luther King Jr. was alive, speaking his message, trying to organize a whole bunch of, of people with that same message, they were attacked, beaten, spoken ill of, lied about, silenced, all of that. So one of the reasons I still have such a belief in the power of the Bible to be a tool for good is what you, what you see consistently is that the Bible through and through is self-conscious of the danger of any people or person believing they have a divine sanction for power. And and an honor and esteem given to those who risk their necks to critique and challenge that power. And that actually the heroes in the Bible are not Samson, they're not even the, the David Solomon figures that our, our Bible stories as little kids want us to believe. The heroes in the Bible are, are persecuted protesters. And so there's this awesome story in the New Testament. It's jumping ahead a little bit, but I just think it encapsulates this so much. The first martyr of the church, the first Christian martyr, essentially stands up in front of the Jewish priests, and he gives, it's basically a, a brief overview of the entire story of the people of Israel. And what he's doing is he's telling their story, and he highlights Moses and the role of Moses as a prophet and how the people refuse to listen to Moses. And what he does is he, he says, Jesus is essentially the new Moses who came as your prophet. And just like all the prophets have been rejected, you rejected him. Uh, so at the end of his sermon, essentially, this is his, his final death speech, really. He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. And the very next line is when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. And then they stoned him to death. And so there's this thing built in that Stephen grasps onto, which is that it's not the religious establishment that is in the divine spotlight with God's divine favor. It's actually, as Jesus just revealed more clearly than ever, what, what has typically throughout Israel's history revealed who is in the right, the one who is vindicated as righteous, is the one who was completely rejected by the religious establishment, completely rejected by those in power. And Jesus is the ultimate prophet who steps into that role to challenge power, is killed for it, 
And Stephen then further, as a Christian, enacts his own courageous willingness to be a prophet on behalf of Jesus by doing the exact same thing, by standing up, accusing those in power of injustice, of murder, and is willing to die for it. And now, 2,000 years later, we call Jesus the Messiah, not the criminal that everybody around him was calling him. And we call Stephen a martyr or a prophet or one of the first Christian heroes. But the reality is, if we were standing there in that time, most of the people in the scene were the ones violently oppressing him. The majority of people Mm. in this story are those who want to use power for violence to protect themselves. The prophets are the rare ones. And there's this, this thing built into the scriptures that is to me one of the one of the most beautiful and necessary safeguards against religion honestly or built into religion which is that it values self-critique and so there's actually a, a book i read years back uh i'd probably have a different reaction to the book as a whole if i read it now um but there's a really good point in there it's by an indian named vishal mangawadi and it's beca- it's called the book that made your world and he was a, an indian intellectual who didn't grow up with any christian upbringing was basically exploring whatever kind of philosophy ancient wisdom he could find and one day he picks up the bible and he starts reading it and he picks it up and just reads it cover to cover so he's basically reading the the hebrew scriptures and what he notices because he's read so much history is that this book, the Bible, is the first book that he's ever read that is essentially giving history from the view of the powerless, and it's history that is self-critical. And he essentially looks around and says, there is no other culture, no other people group, no other religion that has preserved its failures and its own challenges to itself as the thing that, that is to be lifted up and exalted there is this thread that is built in to the story of the Old Testament, but it's built into the nature of the Bible itself. By the very nature that a large chunk of the Old Testament is books of the prophets whose sole job it was to critique those in power. That what that means is there is an ethical responsibility built into what it means to be someone who's who's reading this book or who now shares a a Christian heritage, that it's not only okay to speak truth to power. That's a title of a, of a really good little book by a guy named Walter Brueggemann. It's not only okay to speak truth to power. It's actually necessary. If you're going to claim the Bible as a backing for your Christianity, that you submit that Christianity to the same kind of prophetic critique that all of the people within those scriptures were submitted to. Yeah, this is reminding me of kind of like episode nine stuff. If people are always going to say when you're challenging the like the norm, which the norm is usually the thing in power, if you're challenging that, people are always going to say like, no, you're wrong, like get out of here, you're done. It doesn't always mean that if you're challenging what most people are doing, then you're right. That doesn't just because like you're challenging what's what's norm doesn't mean it's right. That's not why it's right. So how do you know if you are right and what you're saying needs to be said and you should like die for this thing (laughs) or how do you know if that persecution that's coming is like a well-needed here's the word rebuke yeah i mean there are a couple different different angles we could take with that but one is what i said earlier is that i i've gotten to a place in reflection i think a lot of people honestly have some are christians some aren't um in doing sociology and anthropology and just observing the world around them is that the the social dynamics of power of of differentials in power between people 
has an effect on everything. So if you've paid attention to this recent Me Too movement and the different sexual abuse stories that have been coming out, there was sort of this first wave of the Harvey Weinstein and some really egregious abuses. But there have been some others that have been, uh, how do you say it, kind of a little more gray. And in terms of like, there probably was consent and it probably wasn't illegal, but the the reality of the power dynamic, especially when one party is a celebrity and he's a man and the other one isn't, creates this kind of inevitable dynamic where it's consensual, but it's not really consensual because the, the dynamic of power yeah. is affecting it so much. And that's why I just go, and some other people have, have said it well, like if, if we aren't addressing the power dynamics at play when we're talking about these other ethical issues, for instance, sexual abuse, then we're going to miss so much of what's actually causing this issue. There's a reason why most of the people who have been laid flat in all these accusations are high-powered male celebrities who are used to getting whatever the heck they want. It's it's not that they're all like sex addicts and fiends. They're used to having a boatload of power and being able to subtly, maybe even subconsciously, assert their will on the world around them because of their fame and their and their esteem. And and I think that has to be taken into account. And what you see again in the in the the wisdom of the the biblical writers and the biblical editors is that the voice of the marginalized and the oppressed and the outcast and the slave and the immigrant is privileged over and against the voice of the one who has power, the king or the priest or Pilate. Not in the world, that's not how it works. In the world, if you have a platform and you've got the microphone, you get to share your side of the story and you get to essentially silence everybody else. But so much of what's woven into the scriptures is the opposite and an ethic that is trying to lift up the the marginalized, which is why Christianity... That's, that's not true because Kanye West interrupted Taylor Swift when she had the mic and the stage and the platform, so... <laughs> I don't even know. That's too much pop culture for my... You I don't think know I that vaguely, story? I think I vaguely remember something like that. Taylor, I'm going to let you finish. He, th- he thought he should have it or Beyonce was supposed to get the award or something? Beyonce had one of the best music videos of all time. And then he does like this little shrug thing and walks off the stage. Yeah. So no, she didn't. It doesn't always work. Anyways, continue. Sorry. Essentially, what I'm trying to say is there's a reason why when Jesus shows up and declares that he is bringing the good news of the kingdom, that the text that he quotes when he walks into the synagogue and opens up the scroll of Isaiah and reads from Isaiah 61 and another verse that we can talk about later, it is good news for particular people. It is good news for those without power, the poor, the sick, the lame, the oppressed. The captives will be liberated. The blind will get to see. Jesus does not show up and say, if this is good news for Caesar, it's good news for Pilate, it's good news for the Sanhedrin. Actually, if it's good news for the ones that are being oppressed, it's probably bad news for exactly. the others. And that is, a, that is a real life dynamic that so much of evangelical theology has tried to strip out to to flatten what the gospel is, to flatten the social ethics of the entire story of the scriptures, to say that whatever this thing means, it's just as good news for the president of the United States as it is for, you know, the homeless woman who's been kicked out of her family or the refugee who's been deported and treated like like scum for decades. It isn't. What the, what the gospel is includes justice. And again, we'll get into the, the New Testament stuff coming up. But through and through, the idea is 
that what justice looks like and feels like when God sets things right using his people to do so, it comes at the cost of those who have been ruling this thing already. And that what is good news to those who have been oppressed is the very threat that makes those people willing to kill to, to put mm. down that threat, which is why what you have in the, the testimony of Paul, no matter how you feel about Paul in his letters, which you, which you have to, to appreciate is that Paul represents the worst kind of religion that has been around for all of human history, which says, God is on my side calling me to kill you. Paul went around just like the Pharisees who had Jesus killed. He wanted to keep that up and believed that God was calling him to kill Christians. And and this idea gets talked about in Old Testament and New, that those who are going to persecute the prophets are going to think that they're doing God's will when they do it. And, and Paul gives that warning to others who are going to go out and preach. He, he knows that because that was him. He, he believed that he was doing God's religion. He had a view, which was just this second thread, which is that God wants to use his people to rule the world. And he forgot about this whole other thread, which is the beauty of relinquishing power. And when he discovered that beauty in the person of Jesus, he realized what he was doing was the very thing that had killed Jesus in the first place. Mm. And the very thing that his whole heritage as a Jew had been trying to communicate, which is it it isn't the one who killed the prophets that are Jesus' people, that are God's chosen ones. It's the prophets who are willing to be killed for the sake of truth and justice. And so it isn't too far of a, of a gap to look around today and the kind of people that we are talking to and engaging with who have been hurt by the church, marginalized by the church, silenced by the church, abused by the church, and had that abuse covered up systematically. When those people want to say, hey, there's something broken here, there's a critique here, your theology is skewed, your way of treating people is antithetical to Jesus, when the establishment, the coalitions, and the denominational councils of the world want to silence all of those people, by saying things like, if you're doubting, you're in sin and you're not a Christian or any of those little manipulative things that we have thousands of years of history in the entire scope of the biblical story to say that, wait, wait, wait a second. It's always been the ones in religious power who the Bible has critiqued and said are most in danger of being on God's wrong side. And it's those who are being oppressed and kicked out and chastised and persecuted by those in religious power that are usually the ones who are vindicated as God's agents of change. I think, yeah. So here's what's happening. We want to say, and I used to do this, I remember. We want to say it's about it's about what you believe, right? So you can have that power as long as you're believing the right thing, even if, like, believing the right set of doctrines about God or whatever even if what you're doing is oppressing people, right? So that's almost radical to say that like that piece is actually more important. So when I, when I, when I think of like, yeah, but what if the guy's like wrong? Well, he's saying something and the religious powers are like slaying him for it, but he might be wrong in what he's in the doctrine that he's carrying or something, mm-hmm. but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is, is what then happens, which is they slay him and maintain their power and he has no power and is outside the community. Correct. And, and we're going to spend a couple episodes getting into more New Testament Christian ethics around this story of power in the next couple episodes. But we've all, well, I'm not done here. What we've always said is it's more important that, that we get that bad theology out of, we get that, we get that heresy out of our midst, even if it means he dies because that death, it's all, this all comes back to heaven and hell because death, you know, physical death is going to be nothing compared to the torments of hell for all of eternity. And so we just, that's the, we just need to get that out of here because that's, that's how important it is. And it, th- see where it's all like twisted and yeah, again, the, and, and we'll get into more of this as well too. When we, when we get into the church history, but 
the history of the church. I'm so excited about that, by the way. <laughs> I was just like geeking out about that, telling Al about it. But yeah, anyways. The history of the church is largely a story of the church, much like Israel before them, forgetting this first thread, which is about the virtue of relinquishing power and the importance of the capacity to not use power in a self-protective way. They eliminated that thread and they held on to the idea that the church is now God's agent meant to rule the world. And what happened, the the threat of heresy, actually, theological doctrinal fear of people undermining orthodoxy, became one of the things that for hundreds and hundreds of years throughout various wings of the church, those with the most power in the church used that power to defend their position and their status of power by killing, persecuting, torturing, killing other Christians even who held different theological views than they did. And again, you can look at any part of history, anywhere you go, any culture, religious or not religious, this is what humans do. And part of the reason I think the Bible is worth reading is that it recognizes this and it admits it and it calls it out for what it is. It calls it a problem. And the the biblical writers didn't just point their fingers at other nations. They pointed their fingers at themselves, critiqued themselves for participating in these worldly ways of using power and established that the heroes of biblical religion are those who give up their lives and allow themselves to be persecuted by the religious powers, not the ones who seek to have and maintain well, religious Our, our key story is, our whole story, the thing we wear around our necks is this, is Jesus, is this happening to him? And the powers that be like killing him. But we've done the same thing by turning that into, no, 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 he wasn't actually critiquing like the power because we've now become the power. He wasn't actually critiquing that. He was just doing the spiritual like transferring of our guilt to, to him. So now when Jesus, like when God looks at us, he sees. No, he was critiquing power. He's critiquing us. About a week and a half ago, there's an article that came out. It's an interview in Christianity Today with Rachel Den Hollander. She was essentially the hero who stood up first and advocated for the rest of the gymnasts who had been abused by this sick guy, Larry Nasser. And after over a decade of processing her sexual abuse, as a Christian, she wrestled for years with what Jesus and Christianity and the church and sexual abuse, where all those things met. And she finally came out and basically is, is a hero in so many people's eyes for being able to stand up and to be the first victim to come forward bravely, courageously, to allow a whole slew of other gymnasts to come forward to put this guy away so he would stop abusing other girls. And most of you have probably paid attention to the trial. And some of what she said in that courtroom was, it was prophetic, it was beautiful, it was heart-wrenching, it was powerful. What she enacted and embodied was a full gospel picture of both justice and forgiveness. And what she did, which basically doesn't have a home in evangelical world, is she refused to jump over actually enacting justice, actually getting this guy put away so he would stop abusing other women. She refused to jump over that hurdle and just forgive him, which so many interpretations of Christianity want to jump to. And she refused to just hurl retaliation at the guy, but she actually had the wherewithal to seek the future best interest and repentance and forgiveness of her own abuser. But a week after that trial, she did an interview with Christianity Today, and it came out that she was has been an evangelical conservative church world for years. And long after she was abused, but before she came forward about the Michigan State 
abuse, she tried to advocate within her church that was a part of this whole other world of sexual abuse from pastors that was being covered up by not only the church, but this whole sort of network of church coalitions and organizations. Sovereign Grace Ministries. Including the Gospel Coalition. Engaged in this large-scale cover-up to try to preserve face and go through this PR campaign. She tried to advocate for the victims of sexual abuse in the church and was essentially kicked out of the church. She's got some lines in here. There's one point she says, Church is one of the least safe places to acknowledge abuse because the way it is counseled is, more often than not, damaging to the victim. There is an abhorrent lack of knowledge for the damage and devastation that sexual assault brings. It is with deep regret that I say the church is one of the worst places to go for help. That's a hard thing to say because I am a very conservative evangelical, but that is the truth. There are very, very few who have ever found true help in the church. She, uh, yeah, she goes on here. The reason I lost my church was not specifically because I spoke up. It was because we were advocating for other victims of of sexual assault within the evangelical community. Crimes which had been perpetrated by people in the church and whose abuse had been enabled very clearly by prominent leaders in the evangelical community. That is not a message that evangelical leaders want to hear because it would cost to speak out about the community. It would cost to take a stand against these very prominent leaders, despite the fact that the situation we were dealing with is widely recognized as one of the worst, if not the worst, instances of evangelical cover-up of sexual abuse. Because I had taken the position and because we were not in agreement with our church's support of this organization and the leaders, it cost us dearly. There's, there's so much stuff in here. She goes on later to say that if, if it had been the pastors, the evangelical pastors, that she was abused by and stood up to and not Michigan State employees, that she says, I would not only not have evangelical support, I would be actively vilified and lied about by every single evangelical leader out there. The only reason I am able to have the support of these leaders now is because I'm speaking out against an organization not within their community this is it like this is the wisdom of the bible filtered through the the beautiful gospel of jesus embodied in this woman to, to understand that this is how the world works people take power and they use it to take advantage of people and they abuse and that one of the worst places historically where that abuse happens is in religious institutions like the church where people use religion to further gain power and then further isolate themselves from any sort of critical feedback or accountability and then use all the force of that religious power to bury anybody who would ever stand up against them. And the whole point is what she's doing is embodying Jesus in her courage with Michigan State and in her courage to speak out against evangelical church leadership. What she is doing is... I hate using this word, but it is utterly biblical. What she is doing is speaking truth to power in the kind of way... Not biblical because the Bible tells you to do that, but biblical because the Bible is all about that happening. It's consistent to this theme, this wisdom, this motif that carries all the way through. Again, starting in the opening chapters of Genesis, the Bible is talking about how dangerous and toxic power is. And running through the Old Testament, which Jesus and the church pick up, is a high value for prophetic critique of those in power, for a prophetic critique internally of ourselves, of our own community, of our own institutions, and a privileging of victims' voices, a privileging of minority voices and marginalized voices. It's the opposite of silencing. It's giving voice to those that the people in power don't want to have a voice. The question I'm left with is who can do this? Who can have power and not become this? So that's what um, we're going to be getting to in the following episodes. Okay. So like every other million podcasts out there, we feel like we have to ask you to consider going on iTunes, leaving a review, but I just want to give a, like a special request. The reason we're doing this podcast is because we feel like so many people have been silenced and marginalized by the evangelical church. And we're really hoping that this show can start to give voice to some of you 
and to start to create some community and help people feel less alone, less crazy in this. So specifically, if this show is helping you in any way with that, will you let us know? Like, that's what we're trying to, to do. So if Almost Radical has helped you feel any less crazy, then we'd love for you to go on iTunes and leave a little review. Yeah. All right, we'll catch you guys next time. This is uh, Almost Radical. I'm Nate Hansen. I'm Tim Ritter. <laughs> he, has, he has a last name. I'm Tim Ritter. Nice, that'll be the opening. <laughs>